Thessalonians. We have, uh, we're actually pretty fresh into this uh, study of 2 Thessalonians, and uh, we didn't go very far down the road, and we're at a baptism service, which if you've been here before for a baptism service, you know that I'm going to say something like this, that it's my favorite uh, thing that we do in a church is to have baptisms. There's something so exciting and so special about welcoming people into the body of Christ, about celebrating a decision that has been made to be a follower of Jesus, and about standing with them in the commitment they were making before God and witnesses today to say that I want to be faithful to Jesus no matter what comes. It's an incredible privilege. It's an incredible privilege. And often I would step outside of whatever series I'm teaching through and uh, say, we're going to do something special. Now, today, in today's case, we're going to stay right in our text because as I was looking at the text, I thought to myself, I don't know what could be better laid out than 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 11 and 12 for a message of baptism. Particularly, now this is a, a moment that I need to find uh, two people. Elena is sitting here, and Grace is sitting here. Particularly for you two, I couldn't think of a more fitting message to talk about both what is happening today and also to remind you and to encourage and remind the rest of us that this is what we're here for. We are here to pray for you today that the things that Paul is praying for the Thessalonians come true in your life. So let's read the text, and then we're just going to work our way through. It's two verses, but trust me, there is so much, so much time we could spend in these two verses. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 11 to this end, Paul writes, to this end we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. God, thank you so much. Thank you for your word that is preserved for us, that is given to us, that is living and active and powerful. It's able to divide and discern God, there's so many times when we come to the right place of mind, when we're here on a Sunday morning, as I pray we are this morning, and we are in a place of mind where we want to yield ourselves to you, and we want to say, I am not in charge. I don't know what's going on. I don't have the world figured out. I'm not in control, and I don't want to be. I want you to be in control, not just of the world out there, but of me. And when we're in that place, God, I have found so many times that what your word says about itself is completely true. Your Holy Spirit can take these words and breathe life into us to divide what's good, what's not good, what's of you, what's not of you, what needs to change, what needs to be strengthened. So our prayer is simple. Our prayer is united this morning, God. Would you teach us and would you do that very work in our hearts as we prepare to celebrate the baptism of two young ladies this morning. Thank you so much, Jesus, for your blood that was applied for me for these two young ladies, for us, for the whole world. In Jesus' name, amen. You might recall that uh, uh, last week, because I have this up here today, uh, I don't have it back there, but you might recall last week I had this back out there, and I made some bookmarks for you, and it has these two verses on it. My encouragement to you then is the same as my encouragement to you today. I think they're on the, the counter out there now. I'll have this back here next week again for you, uh, because my encouragement is the same. These are verses. It's just two verses. I think these are verses that you and I should commit to our memories so that we can pray this for each other all the time. 
all the time. This is what Paul says. He says, we pray to this end, we always pray for you. We're just going to jump in, start walking down through the text and see how this connects together. To this end, we always pray for you that our God, I'm going to stop right there before we get to the prayer request because I want to handle this opening phrase just a bit here. This is a, this is a closing phrase. If you're looking at the text, you're, you're looking at, at how the letter's laid out, Paul's going to switch subjects after this. So next week when we come together, he's going to switch subjects. He's actually tying together, I'm probably going to fall on this sometime this morning yet, because it's up here and I'm, I'm moving around too much. He's, he's tying some things together. What began back in verse 3, he's now finishing up. He's, he's saying, now notice what verse 3 says. We ought always to give thanks to God. Well, how do you give thanks to God? Now, you can just say it, but in most languages, we would say that's praying. He's praying in that instance. So he began in verse 3 with prayer. We're giving thanks to God for you. And now he's coming back and reminding them, to this end, we are praying for you. To what end? To what end should be the question in our heads? What do you mean, to this end, we always pray for you? Well, think back to two weeks ago when we uh, covered verses 5 through 10, and we recognized that Paul brought to them this important subject of God's righteous judgment. God's righteous judgment is going to come, and when it comes, he will bring relief to those who are afflicted, but he will afflict those who are doing the affliction, afflicting. If you, did you catch that? His righteous judgment will bring relief to those who are being afflicted, and he's speaking to the Thessalonians because they were being afflicted at that moment. He's going to bring relief to them, but it's going to bring affliction to those who are doing the afflicting. In fact, he goes on with some very strong and serious words. You remember that message. We don't, we don't have to go back through it again. But very strong and serious words about the fact that when that, that vengeance comes, when God's righteous judgment comes, it will come to those who do not know God and do not obey God. Right? That's the category of people. It will come to those who don't know God or obey God. And when it comes, the punishment is a destruction that is primarily involving a separation from the presence, the glory, and the power of might of God himself. Read those verses. Go back and read them. We're not going to have time to dig through that sermon again. Um, but that's what it's going to be. And he comes right back around and says, but for those of you who are going to have relief brought to you with this righteous judgment, you will be part of this group that will be glorifying and marveling at Jesus for all time. To this end, so that this might be true, so that you might stay firm and steadfast in the midst of pressure and affliction, and that your faith might continue to grow, and your love for each other might continue to abound. That to this end, he says, we are always praying for you, that our God. You notice just little words like this. We can't jump past it. We have to, little words where Paul immediately does these brilliant things, that our God. You see what he does? You see how it's different to just say, I'm praying that God would do this versus saying, I'm praying that our God would do this. You see, he's immediately putting himself right there with them. I'm part of you. I'm part of you. We may be separated by miles. We may have different life experiences. We may have different callings. We've had different things happen. We have going different directions, but I'm part of you. Well, I'm praying that our God would do these things. Now, can I stop just for a moment? Can I stop just for a moment? I think it's really important for us to, to, to pause and dwell on the reality of the incredible blessing it is to have people praying for you. What does it mean to have people praying for you? To have these things that we want to see God do in our life have the ability to be worked out I would tell you is dependent upon the, the congregation, the people of God praying for one another. 
lifting our dear brothers and sisters to the throne of grace that we might find help in a time of need. You know, there's lots of times we can do this on our own. And scripture exhorts us to do this on our own. That when we are struggling, when things are difficult, that we can go to this great throne of grace. But you and I know there's lots of times when things are particularly difficult and we find it hard to do that ourselves. We find it hard to walk ourselves to that throne of grace. Oh, if God would be able to pull back the curtain, I think, of the number of times that you and I were directly benefited and saved by someone's prayers for us. I don't think we even know the half of it. Which requires me to turn that statement completely around and say, not only is it an incredible blessing to have people pray for you, but it is an incredible blessing to be used by God in praying for others. It must be true. It must be. It's not a one-way street. It must be true. If it is a blessing to you and I to be prayed for, it must be a blessing for us to do the praying. This, Elena, Grace, but everybody, this is what we must take away from this message. There's all kinds of other wonderful phrases in this text that I really wanted to like title my sermon at and say, this is what we're going to hang our hat on. And at the end, I kept getting driven back to the very first phrase in these verses. This must but we hang, hang our hat on. We must be committed to be praying for each other, that our God, and then you fill in the blank. All right. What's Paul praying for? What does Paul pray for? Well, you read, we read the verses together, but we're going to have to walk through it. First thing he says is, I pray that our God would make you worthy of his calling. Now, I think I could make a blanket statement at the very front here. I think I could just make a summary statement to say, when you ask what Paul is praying for, in some respects, he goes to the very pinnacle. He doesn't do a lot of detailed stuff. He goes to the very pinnacle of what it means to be a redeemed follower of Jesus Christ. I pray that our God would make you worthy of his calling. I ask you, Christian here today, I ask you, friend, I ask you, Grace and Elena, do you feel worthy of his calling? What, that, what does that phrase evoke? Do you feel like you measure up to what God asks of you? Are you there? Anybody willing to be honest? Are you there? Come on, church, are you awake? Are you there? No. This is why we have to be praying for each other, right? But I want you to see this word for calling is the Greek word klesis, klesis, which actually can be just as correctly translated as an invitation. So in some sense, Paul is saying, I want God to make you worthy of the invitation he's given, which I think is really cool because that means he immediately is also saying something about who Jesus is right? Because the gospel of Jesus Christ is that he came down into this world and he took upon himself the punishment that we couldn't pay to redeem us so that we might be free to worship God forever. And when you say worthy of that invitation to all who might believe, to all who might call upon his name, all of those are the ones who will be saved. To say that you will be worthy of that invitation says something about Jesus actually. It says how high and mighty and worthy Jesus is. So we need to receive it that way. To be called worthy of the invitation that God has extended to us, that his son's precious blood ran down for you. That's the invitation, that you might walk into that freedom that that gives. 
to be worthy of that. Now, he used this word worthy actually a couple of verses ago. I don't know if you remember this. It's been a couple of weeks, but it ties back. He uses the same word. If you look back in verse 5, he says, this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God. Same theme, considered worthy of the kingdom of God. But actually, that, he starts off with saying, this is evidence. So really, the worthiness is going to go right back to the phrases I already used, but it's in verse 3 and verse 4. When Paul begins his thanksgiving, you see, this is all one big section tied together. We can't do it all in one Sunday. We can barely do it in the three we have that we've, I'm giving to it, but we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna, we're gonna do our best to do that. It goes all the way back to these phrases. He says, I'm thanking God because your faith is growing abundantly. Because your love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Because your steadfastness and faith in, your, in all your persecutions and in afflictions. Elena, I know it doesn't feel as weird when I single you out, but it's good to help you keep attention. But you know what happens? This weird thing goes outside. I interrupt myself all the time. When I, when I say your name and talk to you, then suddenly everyone else pays better attention to you. I don't know why it works that way, but it's true. Here we have a definition of what it means to be worthy of the invitation of Jesus. Is that the seed of faith that was received by you, the reason you're going to be up here today, that seed of faith that was received by you, that it would grow. And as it grows abundantly, and as your love for people around you and your family and your church family and in your school, wherever you find, as your love grows for those people, those are the things, the signs that say, this person is worthy of the invitation to follow Jesus. Grace, I can say the same thing to you. The second half of that isn't nearly as fun because he says, when you see steadfastness and you see endurance and you see a continuing faith in the middle of pressure, middle of affliction, middle of persecution, that's a sign that you are worthy of the invitation that God has given you. If you don't already know this, it may not be fun to talk about in a day when we're celebrating lots of things, but there's going to be times when things aren't always rosy. That time might be tomorrow, actually. Where the enemy of your soul wants to press up and wants to, wants to steal your joy, wants to discourage you, wants to speak lies into your head, or you're faced with very difficult decisions, or things that are really difficult to deal with happen in your life. It's bound to happen. Both of you are really young, which means you're going to have lots of, I wish I didn't have to say this, you're going to have lots of heartache in, in life. The sign that we are worthy of the invitation that Jesus has given to us is when we are steadfast and have faith in the midst of those pressures, in the midst of those persecutions, those afflictions, those things that want to press in around us. I pray that our God would make you worthy of this invitation. This invitation is an initial invitation. As in, when Paul writes his first letter to the Corinthians, he says, consider your calling. It's the same word, Clases. Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standard. Not many of you were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. In other words, when you were invited to follow Jesus, and I could do this with this room right here. When you were invited to follow Jesus, how many of it was because you were really cool people, or you were really noble, or you were really smart, or you had everything all put together, and that's why God finally said, now I'm going to invite you to follow Jesus. Is that how it worked? No, it's the opposite, right? You were not noble. You were not powerful. You were not wise according to worldly standards. In fact, he goes on to say that God has chosen to use the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. The weak things of the world to shame the strong. Not many of you, can I just, I'll just scratch that. None of us, when we were initially called to follow Jesus Christ, were because of who we were, our standing, our prestige, or what we had all put together. None of us. 
So that initial invitation, being worthy of that calling, actually is interesting because it means when we are helpless and weak, when we are at the end of ourselves, when we have nothing left to give, when we realize that we have nothing left to give, and we come and say, I'm done, Jesus. It's you, or else I'm sunk. Now, you're worthy of the invitation. That Jesus might be everything, and I be nothing. But that invitation and calling goes not just at the initial calling, but it's the ultimate calling, the ultimate invitation that God has given. This is what Paul is referring to in Philippians, sorry, when he says, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call, Kalesis, of God in Christ Jesus. He says, I haven't arrived there yet, but I'm on my way and I'm pressing forward. And he's referring to the end, the ultimate invitation when Jesus returns and calls you home and says, well done, good and faithful servant. Come into the place that I prepared for you. Eternal joy, eternal power in the presence of, of Jesus. But we find ourselves in between those two, don't we? Most of all, maybe some of you don't even find yourself with the initial one. I appreciate Chris's invitation this morning that if you have, don't know Jesus, this morning would be a great morning to change it. We got water here. If, if you find Jesus this morning, we'll get you wet. I'm serious. It's not a joke. It's the most important thing you could do in your entire life. And if today's the day you come to Jesus, I'll be happy to put you under the water. But most of us find ourselves between that initial calling and that ultimate finality of that invitation. And that's where the rub comes in, right? Because that's where we find ourselves, in the middle of the pressures and the persecution. So Paul goes on to pray some more things for them, and we need to keep on moving here. He says, I pray not just that God would make you worthy of his calling, but that he would fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. Every resolve for good and every work of faith. Again, Paul is doing big picture things. These aren't specific prayer requests. I do think specific prayer requests are really, really important in our lives. But these are big picture prayer requests. I pray that God would make you worthy of his calling and that he may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. I think it's really helpful in this sentence to, to, to kind of separate a few things. Namely, what is ours to do and what is God's to do? Because they're both represented and they're both really important that we understand which is which. What is ours to do and what is God's, excuse me, God's to do. So I highlighted some things to help you see that. I think on our side of the table is these two, are these two phrases. Asking that God would fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith. That word resolve is an interesting word. In fact, depending on what translation you're reading this morning, you may actually read a sentence that's slightly different than what I read in my text in the ESV this morning. Because that word is an interesting word. It means to delight in something. And some translations have chosen to say, those who delight in God's goodness. That's how they framed it. Wouldn't be incorrect, because it is important for us. God doesn't always seem to be good to, from our perspective, because sometimes things happen that we don't like. So to be resolved or to delight in God and calling him good is important. From my perspective in the original Greek, there's no article there, so we're not talking about God. It's our resolve for good. It's, the, it's what's happening inside of us, that we delight in being good, in doing what is good. We delight not in our sinful, lustful, fleshly things, but we delight in our spiritual things that God has brought to us through the Holy Spirit. That God would fulfill every resolve for good. This is really important. The two of you getting baptized this morning. Again, I can tell you, this is what we're praying for you. This is what we're 
asking and longing for. That something has already changed. Actually, while you're up here, that's not happening then. It's already happened inside of here. That there's a change that went from, I delight in doing what is not nice. I delight in being selfish. I delight in getting what I want. I delight in making sure that I'm not hurt in any way or that no one takes my things or that life is perfectly fair for me. That's what the old man delights in. But I'm delighting, I'm resolving for good, for God's purposes, for God's ways, to live for others, to put him first, to lay myself down so that he might be greater, so that he might increase, to serve others because I see that my master Jesus did exactly that. He did not come to be served, but to give his life as a ransom for many. To serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Every resolve for good. And follow it up by the desire on our part to have that internal change be reflected on the outside. That's what the second phrase means. A work of faith. That the things that come out of me are a result of the change inside of me. That it's obvious. It's evident that people can see that. Now, I told you this is our part of it, and I think this is really true for all of us in this room. It is our prayer for Grace for Elena this morning that this would be true for them, but it needs to be true for all of us. Our part in this equation is to have this desire to say, I want to be renewed. I want to be different. I want to not be like the world or the old Merlin. I want to be like the redeemed Merlin. And I want it to show. I want it to come out of me. I want to have the fruit of the Spirit in my life. I want to have love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. Any one of those which you could pick out and say, Merlin, you have some work to do. But I want to be worthy of the invitation God has given to me in Jesus Christ, which means I want to give myself to that work, to allow God to do what he's going to do, which is the other side. Look at those two words. Because in the end, none of us are changing ourselves. None of us bring the good to this situation. None of us put our faith on display because our faith is so amazing. It's God who will fulfill, play rojo, completely round over fill. It's God who will fulfill those desires in us and that, that wish to see that come out of our hearts, out of our lives. He will do that by his power. That's what's going to take place. Grace and Elena, again, both of you, I have to tell you, and this is probably not the first time you've heard this, and it will not be the last time you've heard this, but I have to tell you, there's such a tendency for us as human beings to rely upon ourselves to bring about God's good things in our life. Ours is the need to have a desire to lay ourselves down, to surrender, to die to ourselves, to surrender our wills, to say, I want what you want, God. God's is... It's his job. It's what he does through the Holy Spirit to actually bring that about in us. Again, so that no man may boast, coming back and finishing the quotation I started in 1 Corinthians, so that no man may boast, but that God gets all the glory. This kind of mind, this kind of idea, this kind of promise that when we will resolve, we will want, we delight in good, and when we want that, that, that faith inside of us to be put on display, the promise that that's what's going to take place, that God will fulfill that by his power, that promise is clear in Scripture. Paul picks up the statement again, going back to the letter, his letter to the Philippians, which he would have written after he wrote the Second Thessalonians. But he says this, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Maybe I shouldn't pick on those two all the time since they're getting baptized. But who, who, who started this work of faith? Who started the work of faith in you? I could ask Elena. I could ask Grace. 
I could ask Chris, I could ask Glenn, I could ask anybody sitting here by name, if I know your name. And if I don't know your name, I could still ask you. Who started the work of faith in you? Who is it? Did you? Did you wake up one day and decide, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to be the, I'm going to change this. I, I, did you do, is that, was that you? Who was it? God did. The Holy Spirit did. Jesus did. I don't know what, what words you want to use, but they worked together. The Holy Spirit began to illuminate to you that something was wrong and something had to change, and there's a, there a precarious situation you're in if something doesn't change. And I am sure of this. That the good work that was started, God will bring to completion the day of Jesus Christ. You know, just a couple of verses later, he says, he says that I work with all the energy I have. I put forth all the energy. I, I strive as hard as I can to please Christ. And then he follows up with this wonderful line. For it is God who works in you both his will and to work for his good pleasure. I didn't read that quite right. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. You're making a wonderful start today. We're excited. We're going to be, we're going to celebrate. We're going to be overjoyed. I hope we're clapping. I hope we're, can I say hooping and hollering? I hope, I, I, I hope, I hope we're overjoyed at what's going to happen today. And God is going to bring to completion what you've begun. But it is God who's going to do that. As Paul would say to the Galatians, what began by faith, let's not pull back and try to finish in our flesh. Now, the power for this to come from, Paul made clear in the letter to the Ephesians where he writes another powerful prayer that we pray for each other. We don't have time to go through the whole prayer, but he's praying among other things for them to know this. He's praying that they would know the immeasurable greatness of God's power toward us who believe. And then he says this, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. In other words, I would submit to us that Paul is saying if you think of the greatest power you could possibly ever think of, the most powerful force you could ever think of, he, I think, is going to make the case that that most powerful force is the power of bringing someone back from death because death is so final. Death to us seems so final. So when God worked that power in Christ, when he brought him back from the dead, after he had been piled on with all the sins, he had, he had paid for all the sins, which, of course, the result of the payment of sin is what? Death. So all that was piled on him, and God said, no, that's not how this ends. And he brought Jesus out of that grave. That's the power that God is promising to you, Elena, to you, Grace, and to you, every single person in this room, if you will but resolve for good and have desire to see every work of faith come out, he says, I will bring that power to bear in your life, and I will fulfill those desires. And I will bring those, that, that faith out so it's obvious. Now, the process and the path just so happens to fit so well with today. Because when Paul wrote these words in Romans chapter 6, he was talking about what we're about to do not too long from now. The way we move in obedience to what God has just said, what I just shared in these verses, is he says, don't you know that when you baptize, each of you that were baptized, were baptized into the death of Jesus Christ. We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised by the glory of the Father, Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. That's what changes. That's what we're going to do today. That's what we're going to witness today. We're going to, we're going to celebrate and declare that God is amazing in his design and how he, he, how, he, how he put all this together to give us this invitation to the work of Jesus Christ. And when we will die to ourselves, and we will show that by going under the water, 
being buried with him in death so that we might be raised with him to newness of life. Oh, glory. There can be no more exciting thing that we could ever do, friends. <laughs> now, all that is super exciting stuff. But we have to finish the text. Because in the middle of these powerful words, in the middle of Paul's powerful exhortation, I'm praying for you that God would make you worthy of his calling, that God would fulfill every resolve for good, and that he would, every work of faith would come out by his power. He reminds us of some theological things. Namely being, the reason for his prayer is this. So that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him. Now listen, all the wonderful things we just talked about, and hopefully that swelled inside of you, that God wants to make this resurrection power available to you, and that if you will but surrender to him and die to yourself and die with Jesus, be raised to new life, that God will work this wonderful resurrection power in you, and this wonderfulness should, should bring joy immeasurable out of us, and in the face of that, we must come right up face to face with the reality that we still have to recognize when God created you and I, it was for a very specific purpose, and here it is. That's not so that we can get glory. That's not so we can look good. Look at what a changed person. Look how humble he is. Look how much of a servant she is. Look how she would just give everything and give everything. Look at all the, look at the wonderful face she has. Look at all the, no, 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 no. That God, the name of our Lord Jesus would be glorified in you and you in him. I would actually submit to you that if, if and unless you're willing to receive that as the ultimate aim of what God did through Jesus Christ, you have not and probably will not be able to fully receive the gospel. Because it must be at the end of yourself. It must be not for yourself. It must be to bring glory. It must be to make you worthy of the invitation of following, of giving yourself to Jesus, who is the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the matchless name. That Jesus would be glorified. But in the middle of these grand statements, I must remind you of some wonderful things. Even in the middle of these grand statements, look what Paul says. He involves us in that. He, he reminds us of this, this sort of reflective statement. He says, the name of our Lord Jesus, that it may be glorified in you. But even, even more than that, I can give you the good news that you will be glorified in him. This picture of him and you. You and him. It's a wonderful thing. Scripture talk, Paul talks about it in Colossians. He says, oh, let me, just, let me just go past this. He says, the riches of the glory of the mystery of Christ is this. Christ in you, the hope of glory. That Christ, listen, listen. Can you fathom this? That the creator of the universe, the one by whom and for whom and in whom all things were made and are held together and they're all given to him, all that, that being Jesus Christ said, I want to take up residence in you. I want to live in you. I want to be glorified, visible, obvious, known, recognized, worshipped, given, given honor in you. In, in, your, in your body. And he turns right around, just the next couple chapters later, he turns around with the opposite side. He says, you know, when he says we should put our thoughts and things above, uh, think of things, that are, he follows that up by saying, for you have died. If you've, if you've died, gone to the water, you've died to yourself, you have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. This might be a mystery that is a mystery for all of us to contemplate. I don't know if I fully understand it. 
How does this exchange happen when I receive Jesus Christ, that his spirit comes here and my spirit goes there? He says the very next verse, when Jesus is revealed, when Jesus is revealed, then we will, our lives will also be revealed with him. So believer, if you've given your life to Christ, there is some big major piece of you already there. Do you believe that? Do you act like that? Do you receive that? Because it's true, that's what scripture teaches. He came and placed his deposit, his mark on you, the Holy Spirit, dwelling inside of you to guide you, to lead you into all truth, to give you peace in every situation, to tell you which way to go, to be the voice behind you, turn right, turn left, go straight, stop, go, all those things. The Holy Spirit inside of you, and he took a piece of you. I don't even know, I don't know how this all works. It's a mystery, and it's hidden with him there. Perhaps far too often we forget that and act as if it were true. But it is. You know, Paul was not the first to say something like this. This idea that Jesus could be in us and we could be in Jesus. Jesus himself said this in one of the most fantastic teachings in the, all of scripture, John chapter 15. You could extend it to 16 and 17 as well, but in John chapter 15, Jesus talks about this very subject. He uses words like vine and branches and fruit and trees and vine dressers and those things. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Jesus used the exact same language to all of us. He said, there should be something happening when you come to me and you give yourself to me that there's an abiding, there's a dwelling. You dwell in me, I dwell in you. You abide in me, I abide in you. When that happens, we see a beautiful picture of a tree that gives forth fruit. When it doesn't happen, then the tree doesn't produce fruit. The branches don't produce fruit. And the, the worker, the vineyard, vine dresser comes and cuts those branches. Well, he prunes them and he cuts them. He cut, pr- I should get that correct. He prunes the one producing fruit. They might be more fruitful. And he, those that don't produce fruit, he cuts them off and throws them into the fire. I might have got that muddled, so just go read John 15. That's far better than me trying to tell you this morning. In some sense... In some sense, though, I think if you look through this prayer that we're praying this morning, in some sense, we, we might think we've prayed all the powerful things in the first part, right? That God would make you worthy of his calling. That God would fulfill every resolve for good. That God would bring every work of faith out of you by his power. You think those are, the, those are the power statements. But in some sense, the most important prayer we can pray is hidden in that, that last text there. That according, that, that God, uh, that, that the name of Jesus Christ would be glorified. Him in us and us in him. Because it's the prayer of unity. It's the prayer that Elena, may you abide in Jesus. And Jesus abide in you. And grace, may you abide. May you, may you be tied to Jesus. May you, may you rest in him and him alone and that he may rest in you and abide in you. For out of those kind of situations come abundant fruit. That's actually what brings the power to bring about the work of faith and that's what that fulfills every resolve for good. That's what makes you worthy, able to stay steadfast and love other people and, and have that seed of faith grow. But makes all those things possible when Jesus' presence is inside of you. That is in the end what we will be praying for you this morning is that the Holy Spirit would dwell in you. Jesus' initial first coming was an act of incredible grace. These words, this prayer, Jesus dwelling inside of you, 
until he comes again through the Holy Spirit to Jesus dwelling inside of you is also an act of grace, which I think is why Paul closes with this, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. I want that grace working in me. I want God's power working in me. I want those times when I'm resolved to do good for God to come and fulfill that resolve. And for that to happen, I need you all to pray for me. And same for you. This morning, to both you, Grace, and you, Elena, as you come and participate in baptism, we want to communicate to you very clearly as a church body, as friends, as family, lots of people are gathered here for you, people who are here for you, who love you, who want to see this step to be taken in faith. We together commit that we will pray for you. That we will pray for you. We'll pray this prayer for you. We'll pray it this morning for you, but we're not going to just stop this morning. Okay, let's pray together. God, thank you so much. We want you to do and you to get, do what you want to do now in the next moments and you to get all the honor and glory. So we ask, Holy Spirit, as you've been here and you've been leading, we ask that you would just especially take a lead now and uh, allow us to glorify you as we proclaim faith of two young people. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen.